G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. Previously, on Who Killed Leanne Holland. There's never been a coronal inquest into the death of Leanne Holland. If a coroner finds that Graham Stafford is the killer, so be it. Um, is it possible that Graham Stafford's the murder? Yes, of course, that's possible. Have I seen any evidence to demonstrate that? No, I haven't. Police stated that she had changed her dress to the floral skirt before being killed and the ownership of that skirt was never determined. There's some things that cause concern for me, uh, such as the drive to Arthur Powers' house that Wednesday morning. Although it doesn't really prove anything, it just puts him in that general area. In 2016, as you know, the police review report was illegally and unlawfully leaked to a commercial television station which used it for commercial purposes. And Channel 7 gave you a look at the review, didn't they? Having seen it now, I, I think that, uh, that even more so, that just the, the way they have sort of tortured the uh, evidence to try and continue this uh, fiction that Graham Stafford murdered Leanne Holland on the Monday in the house. A 610 Media Production. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. Chapter 9. Media Storm. G'day, Graham. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, Jamie. And you? Very good, mate. Anyway, this is Chapter 9 of Who Killed Leanne Holland, Media Storm. The media interest in the murder of Leanne Holland has continued unabated since September 1991, despite the fact Graham Stafford was convicted in 1992 and remained in prison until 2006. The case has been covered extensively by television media. There have been numerous newspaper articles by the Sunday Mail, The Australian, The Weekend Australian, The Courier Mail and other newspapers. The most recent article was in 2019. TV channels 2, 7, 9 and 10 all ran current affairs stories on the matter. It was the subject of a three-part program by, by the ABC's Australian Story. The book Who Killed Leanne Holland was published in 2005 and it covers the case in detail. Well-known Australian author Robin Bowles wrote about the case in her book Rough Justice. In this chapter, we have the pleasure of speaking with journalists Greg Carey, Daryl Giles 
Caitlin Shea, and Robin Bowles. So we have some feedback, Graham. Yes, um, Jamie, we do. Before we get into that, though, I thought the um, the listeners may be interested in what is coming up in future chapters. In two weeks' time, we talked to two criminologists to obtain a, an insight, a profile, if you like, of the type of person it takes to commit such a brutal crime as this. And following on from there, we discussed the alternate suspects in depth, those men we believe more likely to have murdered Leanne Holland. And there is just so much information to share regarding those suspects. Now, the Queensland Police will tell you they have eliminated all three of these people from the investigation. That's okay. We want to see how they eliminated them, though. But that is causing a problem. They won't share. Another valid reason to hold a coronial inquest and put all three suspects under the microscope. And now let's discuss some feedback we've had. An email from a listener in Thailand. Great podcast. Love from an avid listener in Bangkok, Carissa Nima. Thank you, Carissa. Yeah, thank you, Carissa, all the way from Bangkok. I received a query um, from a listener seeking clarification regarding the comment I made at the end of Chapter 7 about the indemnity against prosecution for a police officer. They wanted some further information. In 2010, when I made the submission to the Queensland Police, I believed there was evidence to support charges of perjury and conspiracy to pervert the course of justice against two police officers arising out of the trial of Graham Stafford. I believed then and believe now that there was sufficient evidence to support charges against the officers with or without admissions by them during interview. A conviction would bring lengthy jail time. I have to tell you, my submission was not well received. I was approaching the Queensland Police to tell them I was concerned there'd been a miscarriage of justice. The wrong person had been charged and the killer of Leanne Holland was still at large and needed to be brought to justice. Pretty much exactly what I did in 1992 when I approached the detective who arrested Sean McFedrin. However, I believe I was perceived as questioning their honesty and professionalism. I do not know what happened about that submission, but obviously no police officer has been charged. We'll have to see what the review said about it. Anyway, moving on. Graham, I've got a review to read on Apple Podcasts that someone posted. Okay. It's titled Leanne's Mother. Awesome podcast, but where is Leanne's mother? Why is she never mentioned? She left the family when Leanne was about one year old and moved to New South Wales and uh, never had any contact with the family after that. Okay. End of story. Last chapter, chapter eight, Joe had mentioned that he hadn't seen anything that proved in the review or, you know, in his time working on this case that Graham Stafford is guilty. Doesn't mean that he's not guilty, but he hasn't seen anything significant to point that way. Right. But he did say if something was to come to light that did prove it, well, so be it. And you've mentioned that to me as well, that if a coronial inquest, you know, determined that Graham Stafford was the killer, so be it. Sure. Have you thought about what what you would do or what would happen if if someone was to prove that? Would that be a hard pill to swallow for you? Yes, it would, mainly because I don't believe that he is the killer. I don't believe the evidence supports that he is the killer and therefore... Uh, I believe other people are the offenders. We've been down that track once already. Um, When the police review um, was finished 
and they announced that uh, Graham Stafford was the offender, pretty much uh, I felt then uh, what I expect I would feel if a coroner came out and said the same thing. But, Jamie, it's all about evidence, mate. You know, we've talked about this a lot and uh, as far as I'm concerned, you just follow the evidence wherever it takes you. And like Joe, I have not seen evidence which supports Graham Stafford as the killer. It's all about the evidence, mate. Very well. This next email is from a listener with a police background, in fact, a police forensic background, and he is accredited as an expert by the Australian Field Forensic Board. He has some 30 years' experience as a forensic investigator with an Australian police force. We did ask him to come on the program, but he was concerned at possible pushback from his previous employer, so we have suppressed his details. He queried the tyre evidence and was concerned with the term identical being used without apparent context. He went on to ask, were the tyre impressions identical because A, they appear to be the same tread pattern as a tyre on the suspect's car, or B, because not only do they have the same tread pattern, but there were some unique characteristics such as a random cut or damage. Well, we can say categorically, A, that they were identical because they were the same tread pattern but there was no random cut or damage. Now, the police officer who conducted the examination of the tyres was what was called a crime scenes officer. He did have a science degree in physics. He had some six years as a police officer, but no stated tyre comparison experience. And if he did have that experience, it was not given at the trial. Now, you may recall that to compare these items, photographs were taken of the impressions at the crime scene and enlarged to actual size. Um, The tyres on Graham Stafford's car were then inked and rolled onto paper and that was transferred to a clear plastic sheet and it's called an overlay. You slide that sheet over the photographs found at the scene and you can compare them. So at the trial, the prosecutor said to the CSO, were you able to look at the tracks in the soil and the inked impressions and come to any opinion? And he replied, yes, I found they were similar in shape and tread pattern. Question, were there any differences? No, I could not find any differences. Well, the inference there, of course, is that they're identical. The witness went on to say that when you slid the overlay over the photographs, the diagonal lines of the tyres running in a vertical line matched up and the horizontal lines also matched up. When the trial judge summed up in relation to the tyre evidence, he mentioned it on some 18 occasions and he had this to say, the Crown has proved that the tyre marks found at the scene are tyre marks similar to two of the tyres upon the car. And later, that is not an end to it because you might be satisfied, at least beyond reasonable doubt, that there were a set of tracks that were a combination of two tyres that were identical with his car and further on, that you are satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that there are at least tracks at the scene which were identical with the tracks of his car with the combination of those two tyres. Pretty damning evidence, really. So in 1992, when I went to the Supreme Court registry and viewed the overlays, I was amazed, I was actually stunned, that when I slid the overlay over the photographs, 
I couldn't get them to match up, not vertically, not horizontally. And, you know, I said, am I the first one to find this? That's how the Bridgestone employees got involved. They had some 70 years experience between them. And remember, both tyres on Graham Stafford's car were Bridgestone tyres. So they had some 70 years experience and they did a lot of research in relation to it. And as a result of that, they could not conclude that one impression was a Bridgestone RD229 tyre. They were able to conclude that the, the other impression was similar to an SF340. So what's that tell you? It tells you that there was a tyre mark at the scene that was similar to one of the tyres on Graham Stafford's car. There was a tyre mark at the scene that was not similar to Graham Stafford's car. Hopefully one day we can show the overlays and other evidence to this forensics officer and obtain an independent assessment of the situation. However, that would not appear to be happening anytime soon. The Queensland Police refused to release the evidence, stating that the matter is ongoing, despite the fact that the last media release in relation to this case was eight years ago in 2012, at which time the police commissioner stated the matter is closed. So what has happened to make it go from closed to ongoing since then with no further media release. Thanks for your feedback and hopefully we can talk further in the future. We are very pleased today to be able to speak with Greg Carey, who many would know throughout Queensland and throughout Australia. Before leaving radio at the end of 2013, Greg was widely recognised as one of Queensland's most respected broadcasters. For more than 30 years, Greg hosted a variety of programs on Radio 4BC and for many years was a regular member of the Sunrise Television program where his even-handed approach to all subject matter won a wide audience. For the five years before stepping out of the spotlight, Greg hosted a current affairs program that was networked across Queensland and helped shape opinion on a variety of issues. In his time in radio, Greg interviewed and knew every Prime Minister from Gough Whitlam and every cricket captain since Ian Chappell. Greg has completed a memoir that will be published later this year. In it, he includes reflections on the Leanne Holland case. We will post that chapter on our website. Hello, Greg. Thanks for your time today. Um, I wonder if you could tell us how you became interested in this case. It goes back a bit, Graham. I came to know and later interviewed a guy called Nick Yaris, who'd been released from death row in Illinois in the United States after DNA evidence proved he didn't commit the murder for which he was soon going to be executed. In fact, he was one of 12 out of 285 on death row to be freed. Now, keep in mind that between 1930 and 1972, nearly 4,000 people were executed in the United States. So if you do the maths, about 100 of those were innocent, 4.1%. Now, in that time, 381 cases were overturned because prosecutors had not shared exculpatory evidence with the defence, in other words, evidence that would have supported the defendant. So I was interested in the subject. I'd done a lot of reading on it. I'd interviewed a lot of people about it, including um, John Douglas. He was the senior FBI agent who uh, initiated profiling. So around that time, the book you co-wrote with Paul Wilson uh, arrived on my desk, and as a courtesy, I read it. I've been fascinated ever since. Greg, what do you see as the most troubling aspects of the um, Holland case? 
Well, there are several, most of which you've um, covered in the podcast. I think the speed with which they decided Graham was a suspect, he had limited opportunity, no motive, and the savageness of the crime, I thought, made Graham, who had no history of violence, a very unlikely suspect. It's not easy to commit this type of horrendous act. It takes a certain type of person, and neither before nor after has Graham shown any of those characteristics. Then there was the expert evidence that, as you discovered, and with which the Court of Appeal agreed, wasn't so expert after all. I'd lived through and followed the disgraceful behaviour of the Crown and its experts during the trial of the Chamberlain, so I got to know later on. And I'd also read of many other cases where expert evidence had proven decisive, only later to be shown to be wrong. There were many examples, but in this case, the evidence relating to how much blood was at the scene was a huge factor in the jury deciding Graham was guilty, as was the evidence related to the tyre markings and the maggot. I was also struck by what seemed to me to be the curious logic of the original appeals court, which rejected Graham's appeal on the basis that even though various aspects of the original evidence was now in doubt, and even though new evidence strongly supported Graham, it would nonetheless still be open for a jury to find Graham guilty, that the murder might have happened in a different way, even a different timeline, than that advanced by the prosecution. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but that always baffled me. The Crown argued that a set of circumstantial events pointed to Graham as the killer, but if those circumstances change, and they did, then their scenario surely crumbles along with it. Otherwise, the logic is, we don't know how he did it, we don't know where he did it, we don't know why he did it, but we know that he did it. The idea that the jury might still have found him guilty was also wrong, because we know the foreman of the jury was incensed about what they'd been told and what they hadn't been told. The Court of Appeal didn't know that, and can't act on what jury members thought anyway. But we know because the foreman of the jury, Peter Hobbs, told us. Now, in his judgment that the verdict should be quashed, Justice Patrick Keane, who now sits on the High Court of Australia, said this. Now, this is an actor's voice, but they're the words of Justice Keane. The evidence which has subsequently emerged shows that the jury should not have been invited to regard certain aspects of that scenario as fairly open on the evidence. And then Justice Keane made this telling point. The prosecutor's obligation is to put the case against the accused fairly. It is inconceivable that the scenario would have been advocated to the jury by the Crown Prosecutor or presented by the learned trial judge as view of the facts which was open to the jury if the new evidence had been led at trial. There was even at the start, to me, a compelling lack of logic about the Crown case. They argued that Graham killed Leanne and carried her down the front stairs in full view of neighbours, right? And patrons across the road. He then placed the body in the boot of the car, and whilst it was still there, used the car to go shopping with Melissa. That's, that just sounds incredible to me. Now, this is where common sense logic and expert evidence collide. These were hot days. At trial, Dr. O uh, Rosemary Ashford said that with a small body wrapped tight, there would be no odour in the boot. Yet, Dr. Ansford, the distinguished director of the John Tong Centre for Forensic Science, said there would be most certainly an odour and that the body side science had nothing to do with it. Now, that evidence alone must cast doubt on the Crown case because it makes virtually impossible the scenario that they were suggesting. The jury never heard that information, but the Court of Appeal did. In fact, in her judgment to acquit Graham, the now Chief Justice in Queensland, Catherine Holmes, made another common sense and logical point that had long worried me. This is an actor, but they are Justice Holmes' words. 
Mr Stafford also showed extraordinary competence in managing a brutal murder without leaving evidence of it on his clothing or shoes, which was seized by the police. Mr Freeney, a forensic scientist, and Dr Ashby, a pathologist, said that there would be impact splatter from the blows to the girl's head. Mr Freeney described it as massive splashing. Melissa Holland's evidence, consistent with Mr Stafford's, is that he was wearing Bronco's shorts when she left for work that morning and was wearing them still when she arrived home in the evening. There was no obvious staining on them, nor on the Reebok shoes that Mr Stafford wore. No human blood was found in the interior of Mr Stafford's vehicle, particularly the driver's seat or the steering wheel. The evidence was that Mr Stafford had always had a normal and affable relationship with Leanne. The sudden killing of the girl, with indicia of sadism, with no clue to be found in Mr Stafford's previous blameless and unremarkable history and no suggested motive seems, although not impossible, unlikely. Justice Holmes then said what I had long thought, and again, these are her words. In my view, a jury presented with the Crown case as it now stands would experience a reasonable doubt as to Mr Stafford's guilt. I would enter a verdict of acquittal. And that pretty much sums up my thinking throughout. Greg, you got to know Peter Hobbs uh, quite well, didn't you? I did, Graham, and it, it was very interesting, actually, because when we started talking about the case on my radio program, we were getting a, a large amount of feedback. People were interested. And one day I had a call from a Peter. Didn't know who he was, but just Peter rang up and he was very angry. He'd heard, uh, he'd heard you or he'd heard Paul or he'd heard about the case. And he said, I'm hearing a lot about what the jury would have done and what the jury might have done. He said, well, I was the foreman of the jury. Now, in that case, alarm bells started to ring for me because you're not Mm. allowed to put jurors on the air. Certainly, you're not allowed to ask the jurors to come on the air. John Laws did that once and got himself into a bundle of trouble. You're not allowed to do it. The law is very strict about that, and I knew the law. So I straight away curtailed the conversation. I, I, I told Peter I'd ring him off the air, which I did. We confirmed that he was indeed the foreman of the jury. And then we then had to find a way for him to be able to come on the air and say certain things. So I spoke to our legal people and they advised a very narrow area of questioning. We could ask Peter what he thought about certain things, not specifically about what was happening in the jury room. And he certainly couldn't say what other jury members were thinking. But it's enough to know that Peter, who passed away uh, last year, he was very angry about what he'd heard. Peter was keen to put on the record that what he was thinking was not what others were saying he was thinking. The interesting thing with Peter is we became very good friends and uh, we talked every week until his passing and, and he became very friendly with Graham. So here was the man who was on the foreman of the jury that convicted Graham and yet in latter years he and Graham were, uh, were very friendly. Interesting. Interesting situation indeed. Yeah. Greg, I'm, I'm firmly of the opinion that, that you forced Bob Atkinson, then police commissioner, to hold a review into the investigation. Is that how you remember it? I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have said that. Um, I always respected uh, Commissioner Atkinson enormously. I think he's a really good man, and I know a lot of people and have dear friends who are in the police force, and they respect him enormously. So I have nothing but respect for the commissioner. I certainly did question him about that, and he knew I was very interested in this case. And, and I was a bit dogged about this idea of a review. 
And at one stage, um, Commissioner Atkinson did say it would be transparent, which sadly it hasn't turned out to be. Now he's no longer the commissioner. There have been two since him. So I don't know exactly what's happened there, but I don't think it's played out exactly how he would have wanted. But yeah, I, I played a role in that most certainly. That's right. Um, I recall he said the review would be transparent, accountable and open to all. And uh, sadly, it's none of those things, is it? Now, it's most concerning. I, I think it's concerning, ironically, for the police, as well as Graham, obviously, and, and everybody else. I would have thought a, a transparent review would have answered many of the questions that you've been raising for a very long time, and, and in which many other people are now interested and have been for many years. Uh, and that the review, which was meant to be transparent and open to all, was released to a media outlet, I didn't think sat well at all with the original, um, the original aim of Commissioner Atkinson. A very special thanks to Greg Carey for coming on the show and gracing us with your silky tones. We now have the pleasure of speaking with Caitlin Shea, executive producer of Australian Story. Caitlin has been a producer on Australian Story for many, many years and became executive producer of the program in 2018, just the third executive producer the program has had in its 25-year history. Well, yeah, thank you, Caitlin, for joining us on the show. You're welcome. Can you tell us how you became aware of this case? It was many years ago. So it was back in about 2007, I think, that I remember reading the Sunday Mail and there was a journalist called Daryl Giles who was championing the case of Graham Stafford a lot. He was doing lots and lots of articles about it. So I read it in the Sunday Mail and I contacted Graham Crowley and I think we had lunch or a cup of tea or something like that. And Graham was explaining the story to me and I just remember being struck that this man who had nothing to do with this case, this former police officer, who was just so concerned about what had gone wrong and his concerns about the case, was willing to give of his time and energy to a man that he didn't know uh, because he didn't think that justice had been done. And he, you know, with some others, had assembled a big group of people who were very concerned and they'd got some good expertise together. Uh, they'd managed to contact the jury foreman who was also concerned and thought that uh, Graham should not have been convicted now in hindsight. So I think I was just struck by Graham Crowley's fairness and balance and independence about it all, but uh, also his commitment to um, the cause and to um, see, see justice occur in this case. True. And so you went on to produce three episodes on Australian Story about Leanne Holland. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah, so the first two was a two-parter that we called Body of Evidence back in 2007. And basically, they just looked at, well, what was the police case against Graham Stafford? Uh, what was the sort of holes in that police case? And then um, we part two, we kind of went on a little bit further and we interviewed some prison guards who sort of said, you know, most people in jail say that they're innocent, but they were prepared to speak out publicly and say that they just did not feel that this man had it in him, you know, to, to do this terrible crime. So it was just a big comprehensive two-parter looking at the case. I think it was the first time really that had been done on television so comprehensively. 
Yeah, you did a great job, by the way. It was a really good series. Thank you. And then in 2010, um, I did a story called The Night Before Christmas, which was um, all about I was kind of, you know, privy to a lot of behind the scenes with the Graham Stafford team that were working uh, finally before the Court of Appeal. They'd got this very significant hearing before the Court of Appeal to finally hear this case again. So, we did some filming uh, on that, I think it was Christmas Eve or sometime around then where Graham was going to find out what the Court of Appeal had said. And, of course, the Court of Appeal uh, quashed that conviction. Uh, one of the judges thought he should be acquitted. The other two judges thought that there should be a retrial. So that then, because the conviction had been quashed, that allowed Graham Stafford to be able to be interviewed for the first time. So in that story, we then looked at the story, I guess, from Graham Stafford's perspective. We heard it from everybody else's perspective. This was now him telling his story and what it had been like for him. And, you know, me putting to him that very hard question, did you kill Leanne Holland? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And because you were quite aware of what was going on and you did a bit of research, what did you see as the strengths and weaknesses of the police case and, again, the strengths and weaknesses of the defence case? Well, I think it was just that, you know, I guess the strength of the police case was that, you know, you always, we would look at the young man living with the young girl and think, well, you know, that's probably the first place to start. Could sure. have there been something going on there? Um, but I think the holes in the police case were that they tried to get all this evidence to fit the scenario that they wanted to paint about it being Graham Stafford. But there were so many concerns with that evidence, the tire impressions at the scene of the crime that didn't quite match Graham's car and the single maggot in the boot that the forensic entomologist said that was just impossible that there could be a maggot in the boot of Graham's car. And the fact that the forensic scientist found that there was no murder in that bathroom. Well, there, there there was no blood. The police had said that there would have been so much blood and there was actually no blood in the bathroom. There were so many holes in that case, but the difficulties for the defence are overturning a jury decision. You know, jury decisions are sacrosanct. And once mm. they've made that decision, it's very, very difficult to overturn that. And they had so many attempts at trying to overturn that. But ultimately, my understanding is they were able to use the case of Andrew Allard, that that they were able to discredit a fundamental plank in the Crown case, that being that the murder had happened in that bathroom. So, um, you know, and therefore that that um, that that was quashed. Because there was only like six spots of blood they ended up finding, so that kind of put to bed that. Yeah, I think weren't they coming down the, the front steps or something like that? And Graham had an explanation that he had or that Leanne had cut herself previously yeah. to that. And I remember we interviewed an expert who said those drops of blood, they were consistent, you know, they were so small, they were not consistent with uh, lugging a bleeding body down the steps to then put that body in the boot of, of your car. Mm, true. So you did those episodes on Australian Story. What was the feedback like from your audience? You know, we're talking like 10 to 13 years ago where yeah. it's just not like today. We didn't really have a Facebook audience that was feeding back or Twitter. And so I can't really remember what the reaction was, to be honest. I think it was, um, I just 
I think that people were concerned about this story and I think there was a good reaction from the audience. Um, we certainly didn't cop any blowback about it from what I remember. I think it was well received. I think certainly, you know, his team has told me that it was that it did make a difference for them, yeah. they thought. And you're aware that the Queensland Police Service have conducted a review of their investigation and concluded that Graham Stafford was the killer, yeah? Yeah, so I remember talking to the policeman who did that review. He called me up and we had a very friendly conversation about it all. And um, I was really hopeful that, you know, that there would be a really full and comprehensive police review. I, and the problem is that that review has never been released publicly. So I'm not sure whether it was. I think the way that it was leaked to Channel 7 and they kind of did an ambush job on Graham Stafford, I don't think that was fair at all. I think that to not let his legal team see that report and be able to, you know, defend that report. Maybe there was something in it, maybe there wasn't, but I can't say because it's never been released publicly. And I just don't understand and I don't think it's fair that his defence team has had to work so hard just to see a copy of that report when Channel 7's seen it. What, how, how can that be fair? So I know that they've had all sorts of victories and then they've gone backwards, backwards and forwards, and it's still hasn't been released. And I just don't really understand that. Like I have to keep a very fair, balanced and independent perspective in all of this. So I'm not prepared to come out and say I'm in the Graham Stafford camp or I'm not in the Graham Stafford camp or whatever it is. But to not be able to see this report that has been written that is basically casting a shadow over this man saying that he is still a killer when the Court of Appeal says that his conviction has been quashed and there should be a retrial, but the DPP says that they won't retry it. Basically, we as the public should be allowed to see that report, I think. Yeah, and I'm in the same boat. I'm trying to be unbiased and, you know, I'm not in any camp yet. You know, I'm just just hearing the story that I'm, I'm being told and seeing where it goes, but I definitely agree. This person either is guilty and he's done his time and, he's, you know, he should, you know, whatever, but if he's innocent, then he's done 15 years in prison and everyone thinks he's guilty, which would be horrible, I think. Yeah, he's just in this limbo case. And I have been meaning to do another Australian story on Graham Stafford's case. Uh, now that I'm executive producer, I'm not on the road producing anymore. So I don't have the time that I used to have to research things. But, uh, you know, I was kind of waiting for that police report to be released publicly so I could hinge a fourth story off that. And that's just not happening. So, uh, yeah, certainly I would like a story to do another story on this case. What's the sort of reaction you've had from your audience to your podcast? Um, mostly good, but we have had quite a bit of pushback as well from a few people. We don't really know who they are. They're just um, fake accounts and trolls online just sending us stuff about getting sued and threatening us and, yeah, so that, that kind of feedback we've got. And then we've also got a lot of people who are, you know, pretty – pretty staunch supporters of um, Graham Stafford. And then we've got a few people who are the other way. And yeah, so it's, it's pretty mixed, but um, mostly positive. But yeah, we do have some haters. Yeah, I guess, you know, because I operated in, in a different environment back then, I, from memory, I don't think we got that. But I would dare imagine, should we do a fourth story, we would probably get that too. 
the person who's got something to be worried about here is Graham Stafford. He's the one that we're talking about his name. We're like painting this picture. Like, you know, he's willing to do it. He wants to do it. He wants to clear his name. He's putting himself through it again. So these other people who are trolling us, I, I don't know what they've got to hide. What What's what's the problem here, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It is, it is very interesting. And it's interesting of Graham Stafford's psychology that he does continue to want exposure of this case. You know, he could have just well said, I've been through enough. I'm just going to live my life. I've got people in my life who love me and support me, and that's all I need to know. But he continues to campaign pretty strongly and he's kept that group of people around him too well yeah i really appreciate your time caitlin and thanks very much for speaking with me you're very welcome jamie hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're also very pleased to be able to speak with Robin Bowles today. Many people would recognise her. She's widely recognised as Australia's foremost true crime writer. She's written 15 true crime books, including Dead Centre, Into the Darkness, Death on the Derwent. And she's also written about the Leanne Holland murder. And uh, we're pleased to be able to speak with her. Thanks for your time today, Robin. My pleasure. I know you're well across the uh, Holland murder case, but you wrote, uh, you, you've written many books, in fact, haven't you? About 15 odd? Yes, that's right, about murder and mayhem, yes. Murder and mayhem, yeah, um, all on true crime. And uh, you wrote a book uh, called Rough Justice. That's right. And in that you mentioned, all, I, I think you devoted a chapter to the Holland murder. Is that the case? Yes, I did. I, uh, I actually uh, was was uh, stimulated to do that, Graham, by having met you and, and Paul Wilson when you were preparing to write your book. Yep. And uh, I was very interested in the case, but I didn't think it could cope with two books. But then later I went up to Queensland and I met Graham's mother. And by that time, Graham was out on parole. Or he was, I think he was not parole, he just finished his sentence and he'd gone home. I wasn't able to see him because of the circumstances of his release. Right. But I did I did meet his parents and I thought what nice people they were. And I, I thought I'd like to do a chapter in this book I wrote about um, unsafe convictions. Right. So, yes, I, I called the chapter The Lone Maggot because um, yes. I was just gobsmacked by the um, discovery of the big fat maggot in Graham's boot uh, before Leanne's body was discovered in the bush. Mm. And uh, so I, I 
I know that the car was then impounded and um, that it was taken back to the police headquarters, but without the, without the maggot being taken out first. And it always amused me that I thought, well, how did the policeman know uh, that it would, could have just, you know, wriggled off into a corner or into a crack or just vanished by the time he got this hugely important piece of evidence discovered? Didn't even call anyone over to have a look at it. And the other thing that interested me was that in the, during the trial, an entomologist was given three different files, um, glass files, of um, a maggot each. And two of the maggots were taken from Leanne's body and the other one was allegedly the one found in Graham's boot. Mm. And um, the, the numbering was interesting to me because the, the numbers from Leanne's body were one and two and then... The other maggot was number three, and I thought, why would you put number three when that was the first one you found? We, so we have discussed that uh, at, at some yes. at some length, uh, Robin. It is. Uh, well, no uh, one thought to ask the policeman. Apparently, I, he no. didn't seem to get asked in the transcript. I had a look, and I, you know, no one said hello. Why did you do that? So that that interested me a lot, and the fact that you know. It, it could have been sitting there allegedly, this poor maggot, for three or four days in a boot in the driveway in Queensland summer. The boot could have heated up to around about 50 degrees. And there he was, fat, healthy, and with a full crop of food, according to the entomologist. So it was a pretty much a super maggot, actually. Mm. But um, it wasn't something that I felt, you know, should have been used in the way that it was used. Um, so uh, that was that was one of the things that really interested me. I have to say, too, that your dedication and devotion to investigating this case also interested me because being a former police officer, um, you know, former police officers are not always all that uh, keen on investigating their own. And uh, you've done a st you did such a sterling job. I thought, well, you know, we, we shouldn't let the ball drop and uh, we should keep batting along with this case because it's um it, it's been very unjust i mean there was a there was a forensic uh, scientist from queensland um from brisbane uh, who always gave evidence uh for the for the crown and but in this case he came out after um graham's trial and said that uh he didn't think that the murder could have occurred in the house where graham lived and where he lived with leanne and her family um because there was so, there would have been so much blood because of the way she was killed that nobody would ever be able to successfully clean that up um, to withstand a proper forensic investigation. It just mm. couldn't happen. So, you know, there are many, many anomalies with this case and they've never really been properly aired in a court because every time it comes to court, the, you know, the prosecution has cherry-picked the evidence and the defence hasn't been able to um, cut down the cherry tree, mm. I guess. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's probably a fair summary. I mean, there, there was this um, uh, longitudinal study done by a couple of criminologists a few years ago, which I'm always quite interested in. I refer to it quite often. And they concluded that um, miscarriages of justice in courts are usually the result of a few things and either poor police conduct, the use of suspect expert evidence, prejudicial media coverage and flawed trial processes. Now, you know, 
Graham's trial and his subsequent conviction ticks all those boxes. There was poor conduct from the police. The evidence, the suspect evidence, um, expert evidence was definitely suspect in some areas. And he got pretty poor media coverage because of the, um, the horrific injuries that poor little girl got. And the trial was just a bit of a joke, really. I mean, I've read, I've read the transcript and it's, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a joke. So, you know, it, it, these um, miscarriages that happen in Australia may interest your listeners to know that uh, up to 5%, but more likely, you know, 2 to 3% of people currently, right now, serving time in Australian jails are doing time for a crime they didn't commit. Now, you know, that, that doesn't sound... It's probably about 1,000 people, maybe a few more, Um doesn't sound all that many unless you're one of them, of course. That's right, and, yep. uh, <laughs> and it is a lot if you're one of them because, you know, once you're in there and you've exhausted all your trial uh, um, options, your appeals and so on, you, you're basically you're stuffed unless you've got someone like yourself and others who've worked very hard to try and help Graham and prove his innocence, which is another thing that, you know, we shouldn't have to do in Australia. We're not in the business of proving our innocence, you know, that our guilt has to be proved, not our innocence. Mm. And, you know, so he's now trying to prove his innocence and also pointing out he has a very active Facebook site, as we discussed earlier, and um, also uh, trying to point out that whoever killed Leanne has got away with it. And he's and still out there. That's and right. That that's, was a vicious murder. That is, um, that's probably the most valid point uh, I can think of for, for the reason to pursue this, uh, Robin, is um, the offender is still out there and he needs, yes. he needs to be brought to justice. Exactly. And, you know, you can't go around bashing little girls on the head with, with a hammer and, and just, you know, walk off and go, ha-ha, I got away with it. And some silly patsy called Graham Stafford's gone to jail on my behalf. I mean, that doesn't sound like an Australian sort of thing, does it? We're, no. we're right into the fair go. And, That's right. And I, no. I really don't think Graham's had a fair go. Really, I really don't think. Absolutely agree with you. He did not get a fair go. And more importantly, this, you know, the justice has not been done here and it needs to be done. Well, you know what they say, justice delayed is justice denied. And uh, so, you know, both Graham and Leanne uh, appear to have been denied justice because of the way this case was handled in the first place. Couldn't agree more with you. Yes, well, you've done a lot of work to try and demonstrate that. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm very impressed and and, uh, pleased to know you as a colleague because I I think, you know, you've really worked hard to try and highlight the issues and... and, uh, Graham was in Melbourne recently and he and Jack actually came and had dinner with us and uh, it was lovely to catch up with him and he's such a nice person. Mm. I, I just can't imagine anyone thinking that he... I don't know how he managed to get through that jail sentence actually because he's he's so nice and, yeah. you know, prison is a horrible place. Sure. Especially if you're innocent. All right. Well, thanks for your time today. Uh, look, bef- oh, before you go... One of your books, uh, Dead Centre, um, yes. is that coming out again or is it being... It is. The third edition is out next week, the 25th of June. It's being published in the UK and Australia and it sheds some new light. Uh, it's got a whole new section, about 10,000 words, um, 
on the Falconio case and the conviction of Bradley John Murdoch. Again, talks a lot about the scientific evidence that was produced at Murdoch's trial. And, uh, yes, so if anyone be interested in catching up with that, there's going to be a four-part series on Channel 7 in July as well, which um, I'll be contributing to. Oh, good, uh, but good. they can order the book through their bookstores. It's, it's a, called Dead Centre. It's a fascinating, um, fascinating story, that one. Uh, it certainly is, and it's not over yet. It's 20 years down the track, and we're still arguing about it. Like Graham's story, you know. Yep. They don't go away because they nag people because of the injustice. That's the thing. You know, some people just can't handle it. It's, it's not solved. And yep. uh, uh, other people, you know, wipe their hands and say, of course it's solved. It's guilty persons in prison, but are they? All right, Robin. Nice catching up with you. You too. Yes, stay well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Today we also have the pleasure of talking with Daryl Giles. Daryl was a journalist at the Sunday Mail, a Brisbane-based newspaper, for 20 years before leaving in 2012. He held various positions here, including investigative reporter, political editor and also chief of staff. He wrote in excess of 60 articles covering the murder of Leanne Holland and the conviction of Graham Stafford. Welcome, Daryl. It's it's been a while since you've been involved in the case. Um, yeah, I mean I still follow it pretty closely, but um, and you don't don't forget too many things. Just a little bits around the edges, as I mentioned earlier. But yeah, all right, Daryl, you wrote some sixty or seventy articles whilst uh, you're working at um, Queensland newspapers. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, certainly. The case came to my attention about ninety four, ninety five. And uh, right from the outset, it looked a, a, such a fascinating case and that um, this, this guy, Graham Stafford, might have been wrongly convicted. Uh, the evidence that was there from the outset looked a little sus. And um, being an investigative journalist at the time, you know, it, it really sort of tickled my fancy and I started delving deeper into it. And uh, it didn't take long before it became obvious that there were a lot of discrepancies in the police case against him. Yeah, that became fairly obvious, didn't it, very early on? That's right. It, it, you know, you, you re- read the evidence in court and and you think, OK, you know, on, a, on the surface you might think there's enough to convict a person, but when you start digging deeper and look at some of the statements from witnesses and, and in fact, the people they didn't interview that, that could have been key witnesses... Uh, and and then investigate what happened really behind the scenes. It became pretty clear that um, Stafford didn't have the opportunity, the time, the motive, anything at all to commit a pretty horrendous uh, murder. Hmm, that's right. Did you manage to speak to any police while you were investigating these stories? I had a lot of contacts within Queensland Police at the time and uh, surprisingly a lot of them didn't want to talk about it. They either had opinions on the case, others were towed the line of, of the Homicide Squad and uh, at the time I think when we were looking at it there'd been six or seven uh, cases, murder cases out in the West, two or three in Ipswich alone and Right from the commissioner down, there was an order that they had to start solving these crimes uh, 
many of them had been unsolved up to that point and um, and I think there was a lot of pressure on the police at the time just to get someone behind bars for a, uh, a murder and in this case some police believed maybe they didn't follow the right um, paths on homicide investigations where you you know you get the evidence and then try to pin it on someone I think in this case they they got the person first and then tried to build a case around him and we looked at so many aspects of that where where Stafford had perfectly uh, good excuses or not excuses but um, explanations for everything in terms of timing uh, where he was on the day uh, sightings there were there were perfectly believable uh, explanations for these but the police had already formed a view formed a view that this this guy was good for it and they ignored anything that which might um, cloud their case and just went hard for the the bits around the edges which uh, might have pointed towards him and and they tried to build a case around these uh, bits of evidence which I think uh, compared to the stuff that, that could have shown that he was innocent uh, uh, put some doubt on the whole case and as we uh, sort of delved deeper into it and looked at the the real uh, key points of the case they just seemed to ignored some really obvious uh, points which stood out to me in those early days and that's why I sort of got into it yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, I saw a lot of stuff that that was ignored and missed and and uh, just not used. But you you made some pretty startling discoveries while you were investigating this case, didn't you? That's right. And and if I just go back to a couple of those points, that, that there were two key things right at the start that made me think, well, this guy just could not have done it. Um, Stafford was a non-smoker, and the evidence was clear that that the murder victim, Leanne Holland, had been burnt with cigarettes and a lighter. Uh, the, the killer had inflicted these pretty savage, nasty burns on her body. Now, Stafford being a non-smoker, uh, and you know, I'm myself a non-smoker, and to anyone in that, that category, the thought of actually smoking, taking, buying a packet of cigarettes just for that purpose, having a cigarette, lighting it up, going through all that process, is just it's unfathomable. You just you don't do that sort of thing as a non-smoker, uh, and that right from the outset should have set the alarm bells ringing because the police found a lighter beside the body, which has obviously been discarded by the uh, the killer, and, and tried to suggest that Stafford had done this. Now that was one thing that um, it confused me right from the outset. The other was the the police case was that the body was that uh, Leanne was killed on the Monday morning. The body was put in the boot of his car at that point, 10 o'clock or so on a Monday morning, and not dumped for two days later. Now, he, he went shopping with Leanne, uh, with uh, Leanne's older sister, who he was engaged to, Melissa, that Monday afternoon, supposedly with the body in the boot of the car. Uh, now, that, again, is just unbelievable that that someone would risk your then girlfriend, wife to be, would open the boot to put the shopping in the back of the car. Any reason that they go out in this car for possibly an hour or two with with the body in the boot there, and he shows no signs of uh, nerves, concern, or anything. And to the point that he said that he would have put the um, shopping in the boot, um, Melissa would put it in the car. It, it just it, 
biggest belief and those two things alone were had me sus right from the outset. Well, that's right. He, he didn't stop her. He, uh, she agreed that she could have put the the uh, shopping in the boot if she'd wanted to. Um, but then they went driving on Tuesday afternoon looking for Leanne and went to the police station with Leanne in the boot allegedly as well, which was, you know, pretty ballsy stuff, really. Exactly. And this is a guy who had never been in trouble with the police at any point in his life, not, not so much as a speeding fine, total uh, clean skin in terms of uh, uh, criminal offending and to suggest that he would be driving around for two days with a boot and a body in the boot of his car with his wife-to-be sitting in the front seat is just ridiculous. And that sort of goes to that next point you're talking about, some of the, the uh, incredible evidence we, we uncovered in that investigation was the, the, the maggot in the boot. And this is one of the key things that police relied on to convict Stafford was that a maggot that was supposedly found in the boot of his car, one lone maggot, uh, came off Leanne Holland's body. And uh, there was always the um, confusion in the court case where the maggot, which had been found on the Thursday uh, in, the, in the car, supposedly came from a body that was, uh, sorry, the maggot was found on the Wednesday and supposedly came from a body which was found the next day. Uh, this, these two facts did not add up. Uh, and our investigations at the time led us to uh, an entomologist, this expert in, in um, studying insects and uh, and forensic entomology especially and uh, this guy uh, Russell Luke he was um, hired by police he was an expert in the field and he was asked to review their evidence regarding the maggot and I tracked him down to he was then when I got him he was working for the defense in uh, Darwin and he revealed that he had written a special report for police about the maggot in the boot and um, his report revealed that the maggot could not have come off Leanne Holland's body, that this lone maggot was healthy, had, uh, had been eating, uh, was fat, was bigger than the maggots on Leanne's body, yet it's supposedly been in this boot for two to three days. Uh, with no food source whatsoever. He said it would have been a dried up, dead, uh, not alive, but the one that he examined, just it didn't match up at all. And he said that could not be the case, let alone the fact that it was one uh, sole maggot in a, in, a, in a boot where a body had been for three days. He said that it would have been impossible to lift this body out of the car without uh, losing you know, one, three, five dozens of maggots in the boot, mm. uh, let alone the smell from that, which he said was non-existent. There were no other signs in the boot of, of bodily fluids, blood, anything which suggested that, that a body had been put in there. Now, as I said, he, t he gave me this exclusive evidence that said he produced a report for police which highlighted all this, but they chose to ignore it. It got to the point they said, no, we don't need to help anymore, thanks very much. He mm. was paid for his work, but he was never called upon. His report was never re revealed or released in court. And at Sunday Mail, we were the first to publish details of it. 
just another example where the the evidence didn't fit their scenario, so they just um, buried it. Exactly, the evidence contradicted their case, uh, their whole case, and if it got to court, it would have been shot down in flames on that point alone. This one guy could have destroyed the whole case. The person we call pedophile Pete had some post-mortem photos of Leanne Holland. Is that right? That's correct. We got information uh, at the time that a, a former fellow inmate came to me and said, I know this guy. I was um, sharing a cell with him at one point in the jail they were in together and he was he was scared of this bloke he was absolutely terrified of him he shared a cell with him but, and he said at one point Pete as we call him um, pulled out these photographs and showed him which were obviously crime scene photos of of Leanne's body and threatened him and said um, you know he had to basically do what uh, wanted or uh, family members could end up the same way. Um, he confirmed a lot of evidence which we believed only the killer would know. Uh, and having these photos uh, was certainly uh, scared this fellow inmate to come forward and tell me about it. He knew I was working on the case and um, how he would get hold of these is just beyond belief. Um, at the time, he he was telling this other inmate that the photos had come from police. And we were a little wary about that. They could have been taken by himself at the crime scene or, in fact, come from the police himself. And, and we later found out he was a, a police informant who had helped police throughout this case and other cases. And... I had a corrective services uh, insider t- tell me that um, our pedophile Pete was in fact kept in contact with the detectives who worked on the Leanne Holland case for many years and that they used to take him outside jail on weekends. They took him to a funeral, um, they took him drinking on Friday afternoons, gave him a free pass for the weekends. One Corrective Services insider said that on one occasion they took him to a brothel. That they basically looked after this guy who was serving a long sentence for a horrific sex crime. Yet seemed to have uh, mates on the inside who looked after him at weekends and took him outside. And I was showing records of something like about six weekends over a nine weekend, nine week stretch where he was out with these detectives on this week on these weekends which is just you know, hard to believe that anyone would be uh, given that sort of assistance by police. Well, in fact, um, pedophile Pete was bragging that this happened during the entire length of his sentence, not just um, for a short period. But uh, the records you were showing didn't go over the, the entire period of his sentence, did they? No, the records I was just a, a select period of pretty intense uh, uh, travel in and out of the jail. Um, the insider was breaking all sorts of rules to, to look at this information just to help me out and uh, and it was not able to obviously look at the whole period covering a number of years but certainly was able to confirm the, the 
the information that we had and uh, that this uh, Pete was given special treatment by detectives working on the Holland case. Anyway, thanks for talking with me about this. Um, no problem. Best of luck. Cheers, mate. And that's it for Chapter 9. Thanks so much for listening. Join us again next fortnight for Chapter 10 of Profiler's Dream. We have some more information regarding the clothing that Leanne was found in and a lead on that old white ambulance that was sighted at the location where Leanne's body was found. A special thanks to our guests for this episode, Caitlin Shea, Daryl Giles, Robin Bowles and Greg Carey. Cheers. I would also like to thank a few companies that support me, Audio Technica Australia, Yamaha Music Australia, Zoom, Isotope, and Sound Theory. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. It was recorded, edited, and theme song by Jamie Pultz. It was mixed and mastered by Alex Rottier at Paperbark Studios. The music for this episode was entirely produced by Bubba Beats and you can find him on SoundCloud or Instagram or Spotify. Just look for at Bubba Beats. If you like any of the sounds that you hear and you are a podcaster looking to make a true crime podcast, then you can purchase his sounds or the links will be in the show notes. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. And please, if you're enjoying the show, share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. 